Hi, this is Albert. And this is Luke. Today is Monday, the 8th of February. Welcome to the Telescope Investing Podcast. So a few weeks ago, we came up with our model portfolio for 2021, containing 15 stocks that Luke and I are going to invest in. And one of those stocks was Magnite, which is a small company in the space of programmatic advertising. In last year's model portfolio, we had a similar company called the Trade Desk, and we've dropped the Trade Desk and picked up Magnite this year. So we thought we'd better do a podcast episode to explain some of our thinking, and actually the key difference between these two companies that partner quite closely together. So we will dive into the business of programmatic advertising in general, and then Magnite specifically as a stock to invest in. Albert and I are committed to owning all the stocks in the model portfolio. You know, Albert, I tried to buy my Magnite position last week for my actual portfolio and I failed. What happened, Luke? I won't name check my broker, but I'm definitely struggling with them. So I think I'm going to be moving some funds over to another broker now to give me more flexibility. Magnite's unfortunately a bit of a smaller stock, less actively traded. I found to my surprise that my current broker don't support it. I've run into that a few times in the past with Fiverr when I tried to buy that last year. So it can be handy to have more than one brokerage to give you the flexibility you need. I'm going to have to move some money around before I can now buy my Magnite stock. That's a real shame, Luca. I'm not sure if you know this, but Magnite stock jumped 25% on Friday. It jumped uh, the day after I failed to buy it. And I now hold my current broker accountable for that lost value. Wow, that's uh, that's quite painful. Fortunately, I was luckier. I managed to buy a small holding in Magnite early last week. So I was quite happy to see that big jump. You're killing all of us in the game that we've been playing. You're several percentage points ahead of us other players uh, and it's only the 8th of February. Yeah, but your brother Matt is catching up really quickly though. Have you noticed his strategy for investing? Yeah, I think he's told us he's just buying the model portfolio. Yeah, no, we, we don't recommend that to our listeners. Don't take someone else's word for it. Do your own due diligence and if you're enjoying these podcasts and you're considering our strategy as part of your own investments, then brilliant, fold it into your own planning. But don't just blindly buy the model portfolio with the expectation that that's your only set of holdings. You've got to make it work for you. But anyway, Matt is going down that route and he seems to be making it work for him. Yeah, it'd be very funny if he beats us by following our advice. That'll be a win for all of us. I'll be happy with that, Albert. Oh, but I want to win, Luke. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we've already picked the model portfolio. They're our best ideas. Before we get into why we chose Magnite, should we do a quick dip into the mailbag? I spotted a message I received about two or three weeks ago on Twitter. Apologies, Jay, I only just saw your message. I'm still figuring out this Twitter DM thing. But anyway, Jay messaged and he said, hey, Luke, what do you think of C3 AI skills Otello Corp? Can you discuss them in a podcast? Thanks. I hadn't heard of any of these stocks actually, Albert. I hadn't looked into them, but I know you're fairly familiar with at least one of these. Yeah, I've had C3 AI on my watch list since early January. It's really interesting, actually. It operates a software as a service model, the good old SaaS that they often see in high growth companies. C3 AI is in the area of machine learning and artificial intelligence. What it does is that it provides the building blocks for other companies to create AI solutions more easily. So just to summarize, it provides two main products. One is called the C3 AI Suite, which is an app development and runtime environment, which is like hardware and software that its clients can use to run their own AI applications. And the other product is C3 AI applications, which are ready-made applications that their clients can install and use straight away. Is this just like having machine learning in the cloud or is it something more than that? I think it's like having building blocks that can allow people to build AI solutions more easily. 
I think it's a natural progression of software. When you think about website programming, in the early days, you had to know things like HTML and CSS and really program the website by hand. But these days, you can use things like Wix and Squarespace and just build it by dragging and dropping on a web form. I think C3.ai is going towards the same direction, allowing people to plug and play components and build this AI solution much more easily. And I've seen reports that say when customers use C3 AI, they cut the amount of code they need to write by about 99%. Okay, let's go. Often they can have an AI application running in about four weeks. We don't want to go super deep into this in the mailbag, but what's your sentiment around the company? Yeah, I haven't done a deep dive. I'm just waiting for some time to look into the company in more detail. But I think it's a, a good play in the machine learning AI space. Machine learning and AI can be applied to almost every industry. In fact, I believe that most companies will need to use machine learning to some extent to remain competitive. In poker speak, you could say machine learning now are table sticks. Yeah, fair play. The company only IPO'd early in December last year. So it's only been on the public markets for about two months. And in that time, the share price has almost tripled from the IPO price and it's grown very quickly. It's not surprising to know that it's as a young company, it's pre-profit and its price to sales ratio is sky high at around 85. It managed to grow its revenues four times from 2017 to 2020. Well, that's definitely got all the hallmarks of a hyper growth stock. Sounds interesting. I've definitely got room in my portfolio for more than just the model portfolio and certainly trying to pick up some smaller companies to round out my personal portfolio. Well, with a market cap of almost $15 billion, it's not that small, but I think it's worth looking into more detail. Look, I had a quick look at Skills and also Otello. Uh, I haven't done a deep dive into these at all. All I know is that Skills seems to be an online platform that facilitates competitive video games and might be applicable for esports, which is another one of our megatrends. I think we've got about 12 megatrends we're tracking and only really seven or eight of them got picked up in the 2021 model portfolio. There were definitely areas that we still feel have significant tailwinds and are really going to prosper. But at the end of the day, you can only invest in so many companies. We don't want to have so many stocks that effectively we're delivering index-like performance. And Otello is a Norwegian company that develops advertising and mobile solutions for publishers and advertisers, which sounds related to what we're going to talk about today, Luke. Probably a nice segue into Magnite. And for sure, there are going to be lots of players in the digital marketing space. Yeah, so we spent the last week or two looking into programmatic advertising, trying to understand the space in more detail to really see if this is a growth industry. You know, Albert, this is interesting timing as well to cover Magnite today. You know what yesterday was, right? Yesterday was Super Bowl Sunday. For us in Hong Kong, that was this morning. Did you get up early to catch the Tampa Bay Buccaneers take the crown? I'm not into American football, so I would not wake up early to watch a Super Bowl game, but our friends, Renee and Gotham, woke up really early to go to a bar to watch the Super Bowl. Nice, excellent, well played to them. So congratulations to the Buccaneers, but you know who the other big winner is whenever it's Super Bowl week? It's the advertisers. So apparently it's the advertising industry. The Super Bowl slots are some of the most expensive advertising real estate of the year. And I think this year, even in coronavirus with advertising revenues down across the board, to buy a 30 second Super Bowl ad spot would still cost you five and a half million dollars. That sounds quite a lot, but if you break that down to spend per viewer, it's actually quite cheap, right? Here's a really interesting segue into Magnite, right? Because it's not targeted. If I'm Kellogg's and I'm trying to sell my cornflakes across the US, I either buy the slot or I don't. So I'm buying those 100 million pairs of eyes. I can't pick the demographic of people who I think are going to consume my product. It's all or nothing. And that's the key difference between linear TV and connected TV. And do you know another big loser from Super Bowl Sunday? Go for it. Chickens. <laughs> 
It's been estimated that about 1.4 billion chicken wings were eaten on Super Bowl Sunday. There's actually a nationwide shortage of chicken wings and wholesale prices have skyrocketed. Well, those wings can be damn tasty. I've got to say, if I'm going for a chicken wing, it's not the American style. I definitely prefer a Korean fried chicken. You know what? I don't see there's that much difference. They're both deep fried and covered in sauce. It's hard to not be a fan of chicken wings. It's funny because... uh, after a month of veganary, the first thing we ate was chicken wings. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, mine was a bacon sandwich, and the uh, the cat did a backflip when he got a slice of bacon because it had been a whole month without any scraps to be thrown his way. Well, look, hey, should we get into Magnite? I've got a cunning idea as to how we can try and explain the difference with connected TV and programmatic advertising. I've got a little role play for you. I'm a weather channel and you're an umbrella salesman. Do you see where I'm going with this? Why am I the umbrella salesman? You're a cautious, well-planned kind of guy, right? Whenever you go out, I imagine you carry an umbrella with you if it looks black in the skies. Yeah, I, I get it. I know my customers are watching the weather and they want to know what's happening outside. So I've got this great, highly targeted advertising demographic. It's people who are watching the weather right now. And let's say I've got an ad break coming up on my weather show uh, in about 10 seconds time. And... I've currently got maybe 10,000 viewers watching my weather show. So I know a bit about the demographics of my audience. They're logged in, so I know who they are. When the ad break hits in that second, I connect with my partner, Magnite, who are a supply side platform, and I tell Magnite to sell my advertising spot. Okay, I guess I'm the umbrella salesman. I have a new type of umbrella to sell, and I want to advertise this to interested parties. And I suspect people watching the weather channel living in areas with high rainfall are more likely to buy my umbrellas. Therefore, I would be willing to pay more for ads targeted at this audience than say an audience watching a sitcom. Exactly. So when Magnite auction off my ad spot, and this literally an auction takes place in real time in a couple of milliseconds, Magnite offer up my prime real estate of my 10,000 viewers. They're selling a block of a thousand that might all be in one of your high rainfall areas. Magnite hosts that auction and look for the highest bidder for that ad spot. Yeah, and as an advertiser, I'm using a demand side platforms like the Trade Desk to manage my ad campaign. And the Trade Desk on my behalf will communicate with Magnite and bid for those ad spaces. And if my bid is higher than other bids, I will win that ad space. Exactly. That means that within a couple of milliseconds, when the advert rolls, the thousand people that are in the high rainfall area see your umbrella ad. Yeah, so I'm happy because I've targeted my ads to people more likely to buy umbrellas and I'm maximizing my advertising budget. Yeah. And I guess the people receiving the ad, they were going to get an advert anyway, and now they're getting an advert that's highly relevant to them. So hopefully there's some added value for them too. Yeah, if they're living in an area with high rainfall, they're probably going to need an umbrella, especially one of my state-of-the-art ones. So this is definitely more efficient. With connected TV, advertisers have got a much better ability to reach their target audience. Yeah, but this ad space concept doesn't only apply to connected TV. It can also apply to spaces on a web page, also apply to ad breaks in a podcast, and possibly in the future, they could even apply to things like advertising space in video games, virtual reality, and even augmented reality. Magnite sit in a couple of those spaces and they're already competing with Google around web advertising. As you say, they're now becoming the dominant player in connected TV. And I think they've got a lot of optionality into other markets. Yeah, I believe connected TV is the area where they expect most growth over the next few years. You sent me quite an interesting link about that the other day and how the pandemic is driving much faster migration away from linear TV to connected TV. Yeah, one of the main reasons why linear TV is still around is live sports. And because of the pandemic, 
live sports was down a lot last year. Many sports were cancelled or, or severely cut down. Yeah, that's right. And if you were paying $100 or £100 a month for your satellite subscription or your pay TV subscription, you know, if you were doing that for sport, you probably cancelled it. So it was estimated that connected TV accounted for about 29% of all TV viewing in the US last year, but it only captured around 3% of the TV ad budget. And I think once advertisers realised that this gap is growing, they're going to move their ad budget from linear TV to connected TV. Yeah, I read a related stat that I thought was fascinating. Just in terms of the dollar spend, it's about $8 billion of ad spend on connected TV versus close to $300 billion on linear TV. But as connected TV grows and grows now, that disparities can become more obvious and it seems almost inevitable that advertisers are going to start shifting their spend to connected TV in a much bigger way. Actually, I'm surprised that connected TV isn't a higher percentage of TV viewing. Like, I'm no spring chicken, but I haven't watched linear TV for about a decade. All my TV viewing has been on YouTube and Netflix for years now. I haven't even checked if my TV is tuned in to pick up broadcast TV. I haven't watched it in so long. I recently tuned our TV to watch the Hong Kong channels because my girlfriend wanted to watch those local shows. Prior to us moving to our new flat together, I never watched any linear TV in Hong Kong. Are you now becoming a Canto soap opera addict? No, Luke. When my girlfriend watches Hong Kong TV, I grab my iPad and go to the other room. I can't stand adverts. Probably haven't watched an advert in, I don't know, maybe 10 years. I'm sure everybody thinks this, but I think I'm the kind of person who doesn't notice adverts. When I watch a YouTube video, I'm literally clicking that skip advert button as soon as possible and I don't remember watching any advert in full. Actually that's a lie. I've been looking for new glasses recently and I don't know how Google knew this. I've been shown ads for glasses. Glasses designed for looking at a computer that blocked that blue light. When I saw that advert that was the third advert I remember watching in full for years. I wonder how Google knows that you're losing your eyesight looking at the computer. Perhaps it's looking at your search history and the kind of sites you're going to. Yeah I'm, I'm sure Google knows that I'm looking at websites with really small text. That's it yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I meant. <laughs> so, Albert, we haven't done a deep dive of a stock on the podcast for a good few weeks now. We've been so caught up in the model portfolio. But just a quick refresher on the kind of things we do look for. Generally, when we deep dive a stock, we look at the tailwinds that might be supporting it. We look at its leadership and total addressable market. Sometimes we'll talk about cost of production or their brand, their customers, and we'll try and use each of these lenses to drill in and understand the company a bit better. For our deep dive on Magnite today, let's take a whirlwind tour through a couple of those categories and pick out some of the key points that we found. Surely, let's look at some tailwinds. You mentioned earlier that due to the pandemic, a lot of people are cord cutting cancelling their cable subscriptions and increasingly watching TV on set-top boxes using services like Netflix, YouTube, Hulu and others. More and more people are watching ad-supported video on demand as opposed to subscription-supported video on demand. So that's AVOD versus SVOD. And AVOD, the viewers are shown ads in exchange for free content. And so these are companies like Channel 4 and Hulu in the US. And I think Hulu are interesting because they're, they're owned by Disney and now they've got a global partnership with Magnite. So Magnite are the sole provider of that sell side capability for all of the ad spots in Hulu. 
So definitely there's a decent tailwind for this sector. Let's talk about leadership a little bit though. There's a bit of a confused history for Magnite. They're actually the merger of two different companies, one called the Rubicon Project and the other called Teleria. The CEO of Magnite is a chap called Michael Barrett. Uh, Michael previously ran the Rubicon Project. When we look at leadership, we generally go straight to Glassdoor and try and pull the Glassdoor results for the company. That tells us what employees are saying about the company and whether they approve of their CEO and they recommend it to a friend. Unfortunately, Magnite's too new to have a Glassdoor rating, but I did manage to pull out the rating for Michael Barrett, the CEO, when he ran the Rubicon project. So he had an 87% approval rating, which is pretty good, but not mind-blowing. And overall, the company had three and a half stars. So again, that's like an okay result, but it's not a great result. I also saw that Michael Barrett made a big sale of shares last year. He sold around 700,000 US dollars worth of shares, and that accounted for around 13% of its shareholding. That's not a good sign when you see an insider like the CEO selling so many shares. But CEOs are just human beings, right? There might be something going on in his life that he needs to free up a bit of that capital. So at the end of the day, he has still got 87% of his stock holding. It's not like he's completely walked out the door. That's a fair point, Luke. Actually, we shouldn't worry too much when insiders sell. They could be selling for many reasons. One, one stat I did note though, which is also negative, is actually of pretty low insider ownership. Only 5% of shares are owned by insiders. And that's quite low for an early stage company. You'd normally expect that to be a much bigger number. But the Rubicon project was founded in 2007 and I don't really see any of the founders still connected with the company. Maybe they, they sold out and just left. Yeah, that's true. Perhaps it's just something unique to the history of mergers and transactions that have taken place with Magnite. So we mentioned earlier that the ad spend on connected TV last year was around 8 billion US dollars. This is expected to grow to around 18 billion by 2024. I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up being a lot higher. Advertisers realize that connected TV is the future. And generally the people using connected TV are in younger demographics graphics more willing to spend yeah and magnite do seem to have the lion's share of that they're the biggest independent supply side platform for connected tv yeah, it's important that you mentioned the word independent there because there are big players in this space the largest supply side platform for digital ads is actually google google has its own content and they might have conflicts of interest and they have been accused of prioritizing their own content and products over their advertisers yeah the same claims been thrown at apple and amazon too yeah, so I think the market are moving towards independent platforms such as Magnite and the Trade Desk. I don't think we mentioned this, but the Trade Desk is the leading demand side platform for programmatic advertising. And there does seem to be a good partnership between the Trade Desk and Magnite. I think recognizing the benefits of having a fairly integrated roadmap. There are some innovations around privacy and security being led by the Trade Desk that Magnite are working hard to keep up with. These are things like the move from third-party cookies to a unified ID, basically to protect people's privacy better. Yeah, this has been a big story recently because Apple are forcing app developers to reveal what kind of personal information they are grabbing from your device. And one of the biggest complainers is Facebook. Facebook is grabbing whole swathes of information from your device so that they can target ads to you more accurately. Yeah, there's definitely a dark side of advertising where most of us are throwing off much more information than we realize. Personally, I'm a fan of the work that the trade desk are doing to try and drive the industry towards a model that protects the individual better. Yeah, I think the benefit of Unified ID 2.0 is that it allows targeted advertising, but it allows the user to consent to receive that advertising from a specific publisher and also allows them to control the types of adverts they see. And their identity is somewhat protected 
detected in that that unified ID can't be translated to an email address to identify you. Let's go back to another one of our lenses. Let's talk about brand a little bit. I didn't pull out a huge amount of research on this, but certainly Magnite have got a good name as one of the leading independent supply side platforms and their customers do seem to be happy. And I think the Disney Hulu deal is indicative of their growing leadership position. Magnite sits between the publishers and the advertisers via their DSPs. And Magnite have integrated with a number of DSPs, including, as we said, the trade desk, but also ad form and media math. And this allows publishers to reach a wider network. I did spot one bad point. So there seems to be a whole bunch of class action lawsuits brewing since mid-January against Magnite. It seems to be related to the merger between Rubicon and Teleria. Allegedly, in some of these class action cases, shareholders were deceived and some of the books perhaps were cooked as those companies came together. But to be honest, you see these things quite frequently. And for me, it kind of has the hallmark of ambulance chasing. You're often seeing these legal cases without real merit, just trying to profit from really any move in a stock price in either direction. But it's worth keeping an eye on loot, right? Because these kind of scandals can really sink a stock. Do you remember our dive into Jumia last year? And I think there was a, a legal case there that did uncover some genuine dodgy dealing in Jumia's history, which did give the stock a significant hit. And I guess eventually the company comes back stronger, having recovered from the problems that were there. Maybe it remains to be seen if there are real issues behind this. It's probably too early to tell. Yeah, I remember Jumia. After our podcast, the stock went up about 300%. That was a stock we specifically chose not to invest in. Almost shows last year, you could almost have invested in anything and made a ton of cash. Yeah, I really wish I ignored you and bought Jumia, but I didn't. Well, we chose the uh, better quality companies of Mercado Libre, C and Shopify over Jumia, I seem to remember. Another important customer of Magnite is Roku, which is the leading connected TV platform in the US. They are a leader in the ad-based video on demand market. As of the end of last year, they have around 51 million active accounts. Should we talk about network effects for a bit? I think there's some quite interesting stuff in this space. As we said, Magnite connects publishers with potential advertisers and vice versa. Yeah, and the more publishers that sign up with the platform increases the value to the advertisers and also allows advertisers to reach a wider audience. I've just thought of this. I wonder if being a supply side platform is actually a bit stickier for customers than being a demand side platform. If you're on the demand side and effectively you're bidding in these auctions, if you don't have great targeting or rich advertisers on your demand side, then I guess you're never or you're rarely going to win the prime slots and generate value for your customers. But if you're on the supply side, your customer is selling that ad spot no matter what, and you're trying to secure the best revenue for them for that spot. As a supply side provider like Magnite, you're running the auction across all of the demand side players. Yeah, I read a stat recently. I don't really fully understand it. They're saying that the demand side is a bigger market than the supply side. The reason why I don't understand that because it's the same market. There's a certain amount of advertising space to be sold and then there's people buying that advertising space. Maybe it is kind of the same thing I'm saying. I suppose for every advert spot, maybe there's 10 advertisers who are willing to bid on it. So perhaps that's why it's bigger because you've got many unsuccessful bids for spots. Oh, I see. I see there's more demand than there is supply. There's over demand. And it's the job of companies like Magnite to try and secure the best revenues for the publisher. I also think something like Magnite is a win for consumers. They will see more targeted ads, more relevant ads. I think most people are only annoyed when they see ads that don't really apply to them. But if they see ads that could 
could be potentially useful. They may be even grateful to see that ad. You know, Albert, you advertised the movie Boiler Room to me last week on the podcast, and I did go and watch it a few days ago. Oh, really? I feel yet again justified in standing by my position that you are a terrible reviewer of movies and TV shows. That was diabolical. <laughs> I haven't seen that film for for many years. Why did you think it was diabolical? It has not aged well. Now you make me want to go back and watch it. Don't do it yourself, Albert. Don't do it. The only good thing it had going for it was reminiscences of Glen Gary, Glen Ross, which is one of my favourite films. But Ben Affleck was a pretty poor shadow of Alec Baldwin trying to play the same role. Well, I apologise, Luke. I guess my view of that film has been clouded by the many years since I've watched it. Alp, they say once bitten, twice shy. I think I'm like 10 times bitten by your terrible reviews. Let's just bring it back to Magnite. Tell us a bit about optionality. So as I mentioned earlier, the share price of Magnite shot up by 25% last week. And this was because they announced an acquisition of SpotX, which is a rival SSP. And one of the reasons why it was so good for Magnite is SpotX. It's actually used by the majority of connected TV apps, almost as many as Google and Amazon. And SpotX is especially good at live sports and live news. So this really gives them a big step up in the connected TV space. Yeah, sounds like they're gobbling up a bit of a direct competitor buying that chunk of the market. I thought the way the deal was structured was quite interesting. Magnite paid part cash and part stock for SpotX. Now, Magnite stock trades at about 20 times sales. SpotX in the acquisition was valued at 10 times sales. So that's kind of magnifying the benefit of the stock that Magnite were kicking into the deal. So we can see that the ad-based video on demand market is increasing very quickly. And people think that even services that have been traditionally subscription-based, such as Netflix, may offer ad-based options for certain markets as a way to increase their audience. In fact, Jeff Green, the CEO of the Trade Desk, believes that Netflix will offer an ad-based service at some point. I suppose that's possible. It seems pretty unlikely to me. It's always been so core to their principles about not showing adverts, but maybe. I mean, they have just done a price hike in the UK just a few days ago. In some markets, they may not get enough subscription revenue to cover the costs and may have to rely on advertising revenue to make up that cost. Another thing that Bank Night have started doing recently is they have a new product called the Demand Manager, which allows publishers to more easily organize it ad auctions. I guess you can see this as the supply side version of a campaign manager on the demand side. So this opens up a new revenue stream, this time from the publishers. And at the end of the third quarter of 2020, they had around 187 demand manager customers, which was up from 172 in the previous quarter. So it's growing quite slowly, but I think they see it as a growing revenue stream. That's good if they're investing in R&D and broadening their offering for their customers. Or should we round out our view with a look at the financials? As of Friday's close, Magnite had a market cap of about $6 billion. So they're still a pretty small company. As you say, they've taken a bit of a bump in the last just few weeks. Um, that's still really small cap territory. Yeah, compare that to the market cap of the trade desk of $40 billion. Yeah, and they're in the same market. It does suggest that if they both become the dominant supply side and demand side partners, there's very good reasons to think that Magnite will get a much bigger share of the revenue pie. But they're not profitable at the moment, which is not surprising since they're such a young company and they're growing very quickly. I see one risk of this is that they're really relying on the emergence of connected TV and being the main platform for the supply side to justify their valuation. Yeah, I think if you're investing in Magnite, you are definitely placing a bet on connected TV significantly increasing. But that kind of makes sense to me. If I just look around me at the direction of travel, like even my parents have got a Roku. Everyone's got connected TV these days. Yeah, at the end of the third quarter of 2020, they only showed revenue growth of around 12% year over year, which is quite low considering their valuation. But I think this is because of the pandemic 
and advertising was hit quite hard last year. And we're starting to see advertising budgets rebound this year. And if connected TV grows in the way that we think it will, this growth rate is going to increase dramatically. One number that caught my eye, though, was their gross margins. If you look at the company through that lens, they seem to be struggling, actually, even before the pandemic hit. I guess when they were the Rubicon project 2012, 13, 14, they were running at gross margins of 78, 81, 85%. So that's like the majority of the money they're earning is going straight into their pocket. But it looks like from 2016 onwards, their margins started contracting and they were down to a low of 51.8% in 2018. So that's pre-pandemic. I don't know the reason for that. Clearly, their business was becoming more expensive to operate for some reason. Perhaps it's related to all the mergers and they had a lot of costs as they tried to prepare to integrate with Teleria. Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern over the valuation of the company. Uh, many analysts are saying that it's currently overvalued and the upside is limited. So you have to balance the risk versus reward here. Looking back at the whole story, now we've done a deeper dive on Magnite and we've done quite a lot of research ourselves for this episode. I'm pretty happy we've got this in the model portfolio. I definitely feel a higher conviction for the stock after doing all that research, despite the small concerns around that potential class action lawsuit, some of the possible concerns around insider ownership and the Glassdoor score. They still feel like they're a young company with great technology and partnerships in a growth area. I'm quite happy that I started positioning this last week. I bought roughly 0.5% allocation in my portfolio. I hope to increase this to the full 2% over the course of this year, but we'll keep a close eye on the business before deciding when to invest. Yeah, I think I said at the top of the episode, I feel like I missed out not being able to buy last week because of my broker challenges, but as soon as that money moves across, Magnite's the first thing I'm going to buy. I thought you were going to buy C first, Luke. Oh, C. I'm dying to buy. I'm watching the price go up and up and up, and I'm seeing all these analyst upgrades for it. I'm struggling at the moment to get my SIP set up. It's taken about five months now and it's still going through. It sounds like you're having a lot of problems with your brokers. Yeah, I'll get it so I'll get it all sorted eventually and then I can be back on your heels in the game. But for the moment, you're definitely running away. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> you know, Al, we got a uh, we got a good bit of advertising ourselves last week. I wrote an article summing up our thoughts on the model portfolio and it got picked up by a finance blogger, Zood PR, um, and he had some really glowing things to say about the podcast. And it sounds like Monovator is a bit of a fan as well. So that bit of PR has definitely sent our subscriber count through the roof. So I would like to give a quick shout out to just a few names that signed up in the last couple of days. Shangbin, Mike, Paulius, Mark, Chris, David, Joyanta, and many more. Thanks for signing up to be Telescope subscribers. I hope our deep dive today and all the episodes to come are helpful in your own investment planning. Yeah, a big warm welcome to all our new subscribers. I hope you find our chats both useful and fun. Well, that's all for this week, I think. Thanks for listening. If there's a future topic you'd like us to cover, you can message us on Twitter. I'm at Albert Telescope. And I'm at Luke Telescope. Or you can email us at feedback at telescopeinvesting.com. And if you enjoyed the episode, you can find more content content at our website, telescopeinvesting.com, where you can leave us a comment or a review. And if this is your first time tuning in, perhaps consider subscribing to the website so you're the first to hear about new articles and episodes as they drop. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Albert. This podcast is for general information and is not a recommendation to act. Please seek independent investment advice before entering into any financial transaction. Entering into a transaction that involves securities or derivatives puts your capital at risk. Luke and Albert are not regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority or the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and the companies mentioned in this podcast may be held personally by us. 
We can't be held responsible or liable for any action taken by a listener. And as ever, past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Thanks and happy investing.